right about that. It's hard. Simple to understand. There's no better sound in a preacher's ears than lots of rumbling, rustling, laughing, even crying uh, children. It's a great sign of energy in life. Think of that, Eric, at 3 o'clock in the morning when your kids are crying, okay? Yeah, no, no one crying. Okay, good. See you guys. So we're going to start in a couple of minutes with the video, but let me, uh, while the kids are making their way out of the um, space, let me tell you a joke that fits tonight's topic. Have you heard this one about the 17-year-old who goes to his dad and says, Dad, I want to get a new car. I got my driver's license now. Uh, I know you, get my, you and Mom have me on the insurance, but I'd like my own car. Would you help me buy one? And Dad, if you, you've probably heard this before. Dad says, oh, if you want, to, want me to help you get a new car, you got to cut that hair. And, and, and the boy says, but dad, we're Christians, and we follow Jesus, and Jesus had long hair. The dad nodded his head and said, yes, and Jesus walked everywhere he went. <laughs> That's an old preacher joke, sorry, but it, it's, it, clearly, it clearly still works. It sticks. <clears throat> Joe, do you have my video queued up? Yes, maybe. All right, like I said, tonight is, um, uh, this is, that, that's not in the Bible, we're in part three, and the, tonight's um, saying that is so familiar in our culture that some people think it's in the Bible, is uh, God said it, uh, I believe it, and that settles it. And at first sound, it sounds like, well, okay, I guess, sure, yeah, if the words in the Bible are literally true and they're literally God's or something that God told somebody else to write, then I, I guess that's the way it goes. I want to introduce you to um, why this is so um, uh, much a part of our culture. Here's a video from 1976. You can cut it there. So you can you, oh, put not that slide yet. Just just stay on the blank screen. <laughs> We're going to get to that topic in just just a moment. Um, uh, that that slide's from 1976. If you want to know what Glenn and Julie looked like in high school, that those, those images. Julie had those prairie dresses. She had six or seven different ones that she wore to school all the time. I had long hair, wavy hair like that down to my shoulders. I sang only one year in the youth choir in eighth grade. Do you know what our outfits were? Pink shirts, white pants, white belts, white shoes. And we went on tour and I refused to go. I'm like, I'm not going on tour. <laughs> In, in this outfit. Um, so here, here's, here's the thing, here's what I'm getting at, a serious point. And, and God bless those people, I, I don't know who they are, but when I, when I did a Google search on God said it, I believe it, that settles it, this was the number two thing that popped up. And think about what that does in the culture 45 years ago. It makes it seem normative and acceptable. Here's these handsome, beautiful young adults singing this sweet little song that we will never sing in our church choir people just so you just so you know 
but, it, but you hear it and you think, oh, that's just, oh, I guess that's the way it is. But is it really? Let's go to the next slide now. There you go. The Bible actually teaches us where to go uh, to, the, to the bathroom. This was a major thing in the 1880s. Why do you think that is? What was, what was being developed in the 1880s in the United States of America? Indoor plumbing. So there were many, many sermons preached about why churches should have outhouses, not indoor plumbing. Because God doesn't want that in God's house. Here's your proof text. Put the next slide up there. You shall have a designated... Oh, by the way, you can tell. This is one of my favorite verses when I was in youth group. <laughs> you shall have a designated area outside the camp to which you shall go. With your tools, you shall have a trowel. When you relieve yourself outside, you shall dig a hole and with it and then cover up your excrement. Which is a really good word. And it's not what it means. In, I mean, it, it means... It's a nasty word in Hebrew. Because, because the Lord your God travels along with your camp to save you and to hand over enemies to you, therefore your camp must be holy so that God may not see anything indecent among you and turn away from you. There were hundreds of sermons preached in the 1880s that said you cannot have indoor plumbing that's upsetting to God. God does not want that in God's house. You have to have an outhouse. I, I promised Julie that First Community had indoor plumbing when we came here, so we didn't have to worry about, worry about this text. In fact, just to do a quick aside here, the first mission trip I led to South Africa was in 2006, and one of the churches where I preached with our, our mission team was this sweet, wonderful church in one of the townships, I think in Buffalo Township, very, very, very poverty-stricken, uh, obviously low-income folks. Um, <laughs> they had a, a beautiful little church that probably would have fit in about from right here over, seated a couple hundred people at most, and on the outside were their outhouses. This is literally, there were three of them. How were they labeled? Any guess? The people... The first lady, the pastor. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. so just, just um, yeah, I thought it was funnier than you all did. But um. <laughs> so here's, here's the thing. Did I just turn it off? No. If we take all this seriously and literally, listen to all the other things that we have to do. By, by the way, by the way, just to, to, to put a fine point on the, on the where you should go poo-poo um, text, it's a good practical piece of advice. If you've ever been camping, you don't want somebody doing something in the middle of the camp, right? You, there's a place for them to go and take your shovel and cover it up and take care, take care of things. So it's not a bad thing. But here's some other things that the, that the Bible says, if it, the Bible said it, and that settles it. Well, then listen to some things that you better be careful about. Don't wear blended fabrics or sow two different seeds in your fields. Eliminate pork and shrimp from your diet. For men, don't trim the edges of your beard. Children who curse or strike their parents or who are persistently rebellious should be put to death. Don't even say if you've been tempted, by the way. Don't mow your yard or clean your house on Saturdays. That's the Sabbath or you can be put to death. That's Exodus 35 too. I've got all these texts, these references here. This is from Adam Hamilton's book, as you can see. For women, if you're not a virgin, when you marry, the men of your town are to stone you to death. Um, those are some extreme examples, of course. And, and there's a keep, there we go. There's a lot of uh, context around those about why those were important or not important or what, what some of them were, uh, what some of the understandings were around them. I'm not going to take the time to get into all that. But you can see how silly it would be to try to say the Bible, uh, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. It just, it doesn't make any sense if you try to put those texts uh, in, in, into work. All right. What, what I hear from my fundamentalist friends and Julie and I went to a fundamentalist high school and uh, an evangelical Bible college. So we got a lot of folks, um, who think like this, who are in our, our past, and some are still friends, what I would hear from them is, well, but that's in the Old Testament. We're followers of Jesus. We're no longer under the law. We don't have to pay attention to those things. Except when it's convenient to underline a point. And the next thing you know, they quote Leviticus 18.22 and Leviticus 20.13. What do those texts say? Anybody have any idea? It is wrongful for a man to lay with a man as with a woman. Now, my friend Rachel Haney, by the way, 
really helped me understand this. She has a Master of Divinity from San Francisco Theological Seminary. She's a member of the church I served in in Atlanta. She works as a lay minister and a counselor in some of the roles that, that she does. But she said to me, Do you know, if you notice that text, Glenn, what's the real sin? It is wrong for a man to lay with a man as a woman. Acting like a woman is the sin, according to that text. In case some of your friends want to argue with you that, that, that that's about what that text really means. And I'm, I'm pretty sure most of the people, if not every single person in this room, doesn't think being a woman is, is a sinful kind of thing. I, I'm pretty sure we don't, we don't think, think that way. Uh, um, I, I, somebody I don't, I don't know well, but we've corresponded a little bit. His name is David Hayward. Anybody know that name? If you see him on Facebook, he goes by the name of the Naked Pastor. He's an artist. Uh, who escaped some, some pretty rough times in, in, in church. He, he has a great painting that's t- that the, verse under, the words underneath it are love over verses. Um, think, think about that when, when the next time somebody comes after you with some of these clobber verses. All right, so what about this idea then um, that we're, we're followers of Jesus, we can just ignore the, the entire Hebrew Bible. Well, let's listen to Jesus. This is the next one I want you to see. Keep going, one more slide. This is Jesus. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I come not to abolish but to fulfill. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? Here is I'm, I'm helping to bring these things into being, to help to fulfill them, to, to bring them alive again. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. I think there's, was there one more? I think that's the end. Yeah, therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in, in the kingdom of, of heaven. It's a, it's a beautiful text where Jesus is saying, the Bible matters. And, and by the way, I think many of you know this. The Bible that Jesus taught from, the Bible that the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter and James and John and all the rest, what Bible did they teach from? The Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, Genesis through Malachi, that was their Bible. That Paul wasn't sitting down and writing a letter to Corinth thinking, someday this will be in the Bible. I am, I'm, I am that spiritual and religious. No, the texts that we have in the New Testament are a collection of documents that were being mailed or written for friends or written for a church to understand. John's uh, gospel is probably written for a church in 95 AD or so, 60 years, more than 60 years after uh, the crucifixion and, and, and resurrection. But here's, here's the thing. Jesus doesn't just say he's come to fulfill. He also does what a lot of we, us do in this church. He reinterprets things as well. For example, Matthew 5, 38 through 42. I, I want you to hear that. I didn't have time to get this in my slideshow. Julie and I went to, uh, had an appointment in Dayton this, this morning. Here's verse 38, five, chapter 5 in Matthew. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek also. Do you hear what he's doing? He's reinterpreting the law. He's giving them a new understanding. Uh, another one that where Jesus does the same thing, verses 43 and 45. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. <clears throat> when we are looking at a text... And trying to understand it in our current context, we are doing the same thing Jesus did 2,000 years ago. When I was in Atlanta, I taught a Bible study every year with my friend Matt Collins, who was a member of the church, an ordained uh, Christian church, Disciples of Christ pastor, has a PhD in New Testament from uh, Vanderbilt University, a sort of bright guy. We would always we'd pick a book of the Bible like Romans or John or Revelation or Genesis or something. And we would uh, do this Bible study where he would do 25 minutes, I would do 25 minutes, we'd leave 10 minutes for, for Q&A at the end. It was called, what does it say? What does it mean? Matt would do the what does it say part. He would do the fancy words are the exegesis and the theological review. Exegesis is a fancy word that means scientific study of the text. He would put it into context. In its context, when Paul wrote to the church in Rome, what's happening in Rome? What's happening in Jerusalem? What's happening in the Middle East? What's happening with the church? What's happening with Paul? All those kinds of questions. And as we got into individual verses, he would break down some of those verses and help people understand what each word might mean or doesn't mean, etc. And then when he was done, I would do the what does it mean part. And that's uh, the fancy word for that is, what's the hermeneutic? 
How do we interpret it? And what Jesus has shown is something that worked for the community 1,100 years before, or 1,200 years before, doesn't work now. You've heard it said, now I say to you. That's really what we do every Sunday is we're trying to take this ancient and valuable word and reinterpret it in a way that speaks to us today. It's an unbelievably important thing to do in, in, in biblical research and, and study. <clears throat> All right, let's go to the next slide. There are some extremes in the New Testament uh, as, as well. Here's the, here's the first one I want you to see. Any woman who prays or prophesies with her head unveiled shames her head. It is one and the same thing as having her head shaved. For if a woman will not veil herself, then she should cut off her hair. But if it is shameful for a woman to have her hair cut off or to be shaved, she should wear a veil. I was having a pretty intense argument with a friend of mine in seminary. This is back in the 80s. I'd just written a paper on, uh, the title of the paper was uh, Homosexuality and Christianity are Compatible, something like that. Uh, and, and I got an A, too, by the way, in case you're curious. Um, I was really nervous, but the professor was, was super cool and, and, and had a great conversation with him about that. Well, I presented some of my paper in class, and afterwards, boy, did I get drilled by a bunch of guys asking me really hard questions. And I went to this text, and I said, do the women in your church cover their heads? Well, no, that's, that's contextual. Oh. <laughs> and, you know, it's just like, of course it is. Why would you make women in your church cover their heads and, and if they don't cover their heads, cut their hair short and, and, and be filled with shame and all that other stuff if it's, con- if it's not according to our context today? And by the way, some of the, some of the anti-gay verses that people use to clobber people with, all, almost always in the New Testament, well, in the New Testament for sure, have to do with power dynamic, about abuse. They're not about a, a loving relationship to, between two same-gender persons. And that was part of my argument. My paper back then is still a, a truth today. But this text could be used, and it has been used in churches as a way of shaming people. Do you, have you seen people in church who practice wearing a veil and, and doing that? If somebody does that because they, they feel like it's a way to honor God, I'm totally fine with that. But I'm not going to tell any woman that if you don't cover your head with a veil, then you, you, should, be, you should have your hair shaved. Uh, otherwise, you're, you're full, full of shame. Another one. Um, Matthew 29, uh, 529 through 30. <clears throat> Where'd it go? Sorry. If your right eye causes you to sin, what do you do? Tear it out. Throw it away. It is better for you to, be, to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body uh, to go, go into hell. What? I don't know why the mic keeps going in and out. Sorry. Obviously, Jesus is using metaphors here. Even hell, he's using as a metaphor. And he's essentially saying, if you get so caught up in this life, of this, this life that is anti-love, that is filled with hate, well, then the hell with you. That's essentially what Jesus is, is saying in, in this text. Does he mean if you, I causes you to sin, you should gouge it out literally? No. But did you know in the 1970s, there was a small cult of Christians in Brazil who took that teaching literally. Most of their members had lost at least one eye and had lost at least one hand. And so again, these, these texts can be used to abuse uh, and to confuse, to control, to put down, and to overwhelm. Uh, very, very difficult and, and ugly things. And again, when I get in my conversations with my friend, I'll even say to them, you know, I, I understand your viewpoint. You want to take Jesus' words literally. Why haven't you gouged out at least one of your eyes? Why do you still have both hands? Have you not committed any sins ever? And again, what's the comment? It's contextual. It's in that context. Jesus is giving a metaphor. Well, if you think Jesus is giving a metaphor, you are now interpreting the Bible, not taking it liter- literally as, as it's written. And here's one that's, that's um, caused great damage to our, our world and especially to our country. And we're still living on the effects of this. Uh, go to the next slide, would you please? No, no, back, back one. The, the Luke text, there it is. Nope, sorry. It's my fault, Joe. Luke, that's it. That slave who knew what his master wanted but did not prepare himself or do what was wanted will receive a severe beating. Have you seen the, the movie 12 Years a Slave? 
you can hear, it's been a long time since I've seen it, but you can hear in the background while a man is being beaten, shredded, a pastor screaming this text. And what makes me sad more than just that one story is how many thousands and thousands and thousands of times that text and others were used to beat slaves, to keep them in their place, to argue for slavery, to explain why slavery should continue to be a part of our culture and, and, and our world. It's, it's remarkable to me that it took the church so long to finally stand up and say, in the name of Jesus Christ, how can we put another human into slavery? How can we consider another human being to, to be property? Remember I said way back at the beginning of our study tonight about Jesus being a colander? Run, run this teaching through Jesus and try to imagine somehow that Jesus would find it being okay, that it'd be okay to own another human being. Uh, the church I served in in Kansas City, uh, Country Club Christian Church. I know it's the worst name. Hello, Country Club friends, if you're watching. It is the worst name ever, unless you live there, because it's part of the Country Club Homes Association. It would be like going to Upper Arlington Christian Church. Uh, it is just, it's just the name of the neighborhood. In fact, when I was there, we did a marketing study and, and interviewed about 10,000 people about what do they think about Country Club Christian Church and what's it like. And the reviews were super positive and it's a kind church, and a loving church, a welcoming and affirming church. It's a church that does great things in the community. And so we, the result of that study was we don't need to change the name because we were seriously thinking about changing the name. You get outside of Kansas City where people don't know the neighborhood and it's like, that's the worst name of a church I've ever served. Uh, and, and no, I did not have a locker room in my office. I didn't have a budding green. I've heard all those, those jokes a million times. I'm telling you all this, though, because the Country Club Homes Association is a rich, wealthy, and powerful area in Kansas City. Why? Their original founding documents in the 1910s said, no Negro, no Jew, no, no Catholic will be allowed to move into these homes. And the reason I know that's there is because we tried to add parking to the, to the uh, we had, our, our parking at, at Country Club Church was similar to what our parking is like at South. We had about 70 spots with five or 600 people coming to church every Sunday. Parking was a mess. We tried to buy some houses, expand our parking. What did the neighborhood do? They sued us. We went to appeal three times. We lost all three appeals. And what we tried to argue, our lawyers tried to argue was, you're, you're, basing, you're basing their inability to build more, to, to buy these homes and build some parking on, on something that is a racist document from 1910. But the Supreme Court of Missouri ruled against us all three times. The more important point, what happened to that community? Who moved into that neighborhood in the 19-teens and 1920s? Rich white folks only. Now, it's, it's more diverse now. It's much, much more diverse now. And that became a homogenous base for them to build upon their strength and their, their, um, uh, their wealth and all the rest that they had. And that gave them influence and control uh, in, the, in the community in a way back then that they don't, they don't have now, which is probably not a bad thing. The reason I'm saying all this is it's amazing how many stories there are like this. I've, I've heard similar stories of redlining here in, and that's what it's called, here in Columbus. I believe where Julie and I live uh, is on the other side of Scioto where the Italians were, were supposed to live. Is that correct? Um, that, that same thing is, is, is here. Uh, just in case you're curious, I'm not Italian. <laughs> I know I kind of have that, that Italian look. Uh, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's racism is a part of our country's history, and that's 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 something I'm playing with how we what we can address in the future, either in a study like this, in smaller groups discussions, or some readings. Uh, Otis Moss III is preaching for us in in um, in, in uh, April. Uh, his book Dancing in the Darkness is one of the best I've ever read. Uh, he's a fantastic preacher. He might bring some of these issues and put them before before us as well. Um, but this, this is why, why we take so much time to carefully read and study and understand and put into context uh, what, how, what things uh, mean today and how we understand them now. It, it took the Southern Baptist Church. You know, the Southern Baptist Church was created before the Civil War. You know, it's, it was the Southern Baptist basically became Southern Baptist because they were in favor of slavery. It took them 150 years before they publicly acknowledged that, by the way, that was a mistake. 
I, I, hope, I hope any mistakes we make, it doesn't take us 150 years to, uh, to acknowledge those and, and, and admit them. All right, now a little bit about um, uh, interpretation. We've been talking about all this. Well, how does this interpretation stuff work? Um, it, it's, it, it, you, carefully, you carefully study the text. It's called exegesis. Do that scientific review. What's it say? What's it trying to say? What's the theology? I had a professor in, in my doctor work who used to talk about the theology of the text is like the engine that runs the, choir, the, the car. You've got an automobile, but without fuel in the car, it's not going to go. And so the, theo the theological understanding that you find there in that text is the fuel that runs the car down the road. Um, that was Rolf Kinnearum at, at, at Claremont School of Theology. I've always liked that idea that if we, the more we understand the, the exegetical and theological issues, the more we understand where that car, metaphorically speaking, the text is, is trying to take us. And then we get into the hermeneutical part, which is what, which is what I call is what does it mean? And we carefully pay attention to how, what it meant in context and what it means in our context today. Let me show you how this works. Let's go to the next slide. For God so loved the world that God gave God's only Son so that everyone who believes in Him may not perish but have eternal life. Now the word for perish, this comes from Adam Hamilton's book, by the way. The word for perish is Apollo, Apollome. Sorry, Apollome. I have to remember, most of you probably don't speak Greek, so I can just say it whatever way and you won't know. <laughs> Apollo me, uh, which means to perish or to be destroyed or to be killed or to be ruined or to be lost. Now take those last two, ruined and lost. If that text was so that everyone who believes in him may not be ruined, but have eternal life. Does that shift what that text might mean? Absolutely. Completely. Maybe not completely, but it takes it off of this and maybe moves it this way quite a bit. Or what if it said everyone would, who's, who is, is, uh, <clears throat> may not be ruined, may not be lost, it takes a completely different context. So oftentimes, and this is, this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It was the second one that I, uh, I memorized as a third grader. The first one was from 1 John 4, 7, and 8. And it's really kind of the headline of the, of the, of, of the gospel of John itself. But it's also been used as a clobber verse. If, if you, David, if you, don't believe in God, if you don't believe in Jesus and follow Jesus' way, you're going to perish and that means it's going to, you're going to hell. Now, notice that it doesn't say anything about going to hell or not, but that becomes the interpretation. But there's something different about being lost or being ruined. I think what John is trying to say, in my interpretation, is Jesus' way is a way of life. In fact, do you know that verse from John 14, 6? I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes unto the Father but by me. I've always interpreted it this way. Jesus' way is true, and it brings life. And by the way, there's another text in the Gospel of John, I think in John 11, where Jesus says, I have other sheep that's not for you to worry about. Who are those other sheep? Well, we don't know, but who might they be? Non-Christians, Hindus, Buddhists. Um, uh, um, um, today we might say Muslims and, and a host of other kind of thing. Jesus is like, look, this, these words are for you, church, and there's other sheep. Don't worry about them. My way is true, and it, and it, brings, and it brings life. Uh, um, yeah, somebody shout out one of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor. What do I hear over here? Blessed are the meek, because they have a heck of a time, don't they? That's a quote from, from a Monty Python movie, in case you know. <laughs> Life of Brian. Uh, somebody else, okay, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek. Peace, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the hungry. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are pure of heart. Now, I can't... I took a whole year of um, high school French... And I got a C plus only because my teacher liked me. But I think I think I'm a, I think I'm spelling it right. Any French speakers in the room? That's a that's I think that's an R. Yeah. Can anybody, can any, any French speakers? 
I, I, Googled, I Googled it to try to understand how to pronounce it. It's like Ero, Ero, something like that. Ero. Yes, what Dick said. <laughs> now, that's the word. That's the word for blessed. If you, if you Google an English to French um, Bible and, and try to get it out there. So, where we say the Greek word mar, um, mar, markaios, markaios is blessed, the French use Say it again, Dick. They use hero. Now, what does hero mean? It could mean happy. It could mean pleased. It could mean delighted. It could mean glad. It could mean joyful. Now, let's take delighted. Delighted are those who mourn. That's a completely different understanding, is it not? What was the one you said, Brent? You said, blessed are the poor. Delighted are the poor. Are the poor. Glad are the meek. I mean, in a sense, it works. But here's the reason I'm saying this, this to you. To try to say, God said it. I, I believe it. That settles it. Just completely falls apart when you start doing this study. What language did Jesus speak? Does anyone know? Aramaic. Most likely Aramaic which is a very, very close cousin to, to uh, um, uh, Hebrew. It's sort of like English, how it's spoken in Ohio, and English, how it's spoken in Alabama. They're, they're close to, to each other. Please don't send me notes from Alabama if, you, if, you, if, you're, if you're watching. But, and then what was the language of the New Testament? Greek. What's the language of the Old Testament? Hebrew. There's even some, there's a little bit of Aramaic in the Old Testament. There's a little bit of Aramaic in the New Testament as well. You probably heard me say these words before on Good Friday. Lama, Lama, um, Eloi, Eloi, Lama, Sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a little bit of Aramaic there from, from Jesus' lips, according to the gospel story. Now, just think about that. You've got three different languages that work. There's the language that they speak. But the language of the day, in Jesus' day, is Greek. That's the official documents that go all around the Mediterranean. What's the official language in airports when you're flying up an airplane? English. So Greek was the English of the day. It was the, it was the common denominator. Everyone who was anyone who was in power either had to have somebody who could write and speak Greek for them, or he or she, mostly he's, would, would be a Greek writer and a, and a Greek speaker as, as well, much more so than, than, than Latin. So, but just think about how crazy it is to interpret. We're just looking at one word. Say it again, Dick. Ero. Just looking at ero, that has six different possible meanings from Greek to French. But we tend to, we think in our culture, oh, it has to say blessed. It must mean blessed. That must be what it is. There's, there's another um, interesting part of this, too. Um, about 70 years before the time of Jesus. Uh, there was something called the Septuagint. It was a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And what's interesting about it is, it was a bunch of rabbis who did this. What's interesting about it is there are parts of the Hebrew Bible where they take what's one verse and they turn it into a paragraph. And we call that a paraphrastic translation. Has anybody ever read the message? Anybody ever read the message? Some of you had? That's a paraphrastic translation. It's not a literal word-for-word translation. That's kind of what the Septuagint is. And when you read the Septuagint, you get many different meanings for things that we thought were really clear in Hebrew that all of a sudden aren't, aren't so clear at, at, at all. Okay. Let's go to the next slide. And we're going we're to have lots of time. Thank you. We're going to have lots of time for um, uh, questions in a minute because I'm, I'm getting close to being done with my, my notes here. Some of you know, Brent's laughing. Some of you know, when I was in, in, the, in the fifth grade, we had a, a thing called the Jet Cadets for Jesus Club. And the way you moved up in the Jet Cadets in rank was you memorized the Bible. I memorized a ton of Bible, and I became the first ever Commander Glenn Miles Jet Cadet for Jesus. Thank you, yes, thank you, thank you. Somewhere in a box in, in our attic somewhere or someplace in a closet, I've got my little hat and my little wings and, and, and all that stuff. Um, but I wasn't like the sweet little Bible kid that maybe that sounds like. Uh, we we um, started every one of our, our group meetings on Sunday nights at 5 o'clock. Well, we'd play volleyball first, and we'd have a snack supper like we did tonight. So by about 6 o'clock, we'd be inside for our, our group meeting. And we would sit in a circle. There were about 15 of us in the Jet Cadets for Jesus Club. And we would go around the table, around the circle. And, and our teacher, Mrs. Schwartz, who to this day is probably looking down on me from heaven going, uh, <clears throat> and she would ask each of us to share our favorite verse. Well, if you're the first one called, what do you say? Jesus. 
Jesus wept. If you're the second one called, what do you say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, and whoever believes in him shall not perish, whatever, eternal life. Of course. If you're the third kid, what do you say? Well, now it's getting a little harder. And usually I had a couple, three or four, in, in my back pocket, especially 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Uh, beloved, uh, let us love one another, because those who love God, uh, those who love know God, and those who do not love do not know God. That was kind of my go-to verse. Sometimes, just because I was who I was, I like to quote this verse. Yes, it's in the Bible. Put it up there. He whose testicles are crushed or whose male member is cut off shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. And Mrs. Schwartz would say, Mr. Miles, and I would say, Mrs. Schwartz, it's in the Bible. And what would she make me do? She would make me sit out in the hallway. And the church my dad was preaching in, then, in those days, we had Sunday school at 9.30, we had worship at 11, and then we had uh, youth groups at 5, and a Sunday evening service at 7. My dad oftentimes would come by about 6.30 on his way into the sanctuary to get set up for that evening service, and he'd walk by and he'd see me, he'd just, he wouldn't even look at me. He'd just keep on walking by and say, don't quote Deuteronomy 23.1. <laughs> he, knew, he knew what it was. All right, let's go to the next slide. What's the next slide? Hang on. Uh, no, just leave that up there, but ignore it for a moment. I wanted to get that slide off because it's out there on the internet somewhere. Why am I telling you this? There's a beautiful story in Acts chapter 8 about a man who was a, 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 an officer in the court of Queen Candace in Ethiopia. He was a eunuch. Oftentimes they took babies when they were three, four months old and and cut off their testicles and made them eunuchs so that they would then serve the queen. He's in Jerusalem. He's been to the temple. He heard a reading from the prophet Isaiah, <clears throat> chapter 53. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. The sheep had no idea. The Ethiopian eunuch has no idea what's happening to him when his body is changed against his will and against his knowledge and against his power. But now here he is in the temple. Oh, he's in, the, he's in the, the court of the Gentiles. He hears the reading from Isaiah. He has a copy of it with him. And he's on his way back home when, when a, an early leader in the church, a man named Philip, feels this nudge from the Holy Spirit. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, maybe you talked about how I've had a couple of nudges. Not God saying, do this, like this, do it now. But just sort of a nudge, kind of pay your attention over here. Sometimes it happens to me as a pastor to say, you know, I wake up one morning and think, you know, I haven't talked to so-and-so in a while. I wonder if he's doing okay. Uh, he had some health issues. I'm just going to give him a call. Philip has a nudge like that. And the Spirit says, go out to the desert. Philip makes his way out to the desert. He comes upon this Ethiopian eunuch who's, who's reading from the, from the scroll of Isaiah, the 53rd chapter, verses 7 and 8. What are you reading? Who is this that he's writing about? The sheep that is led to the slaughter. And I, I'm interpreting here, but in my mind, he's, he's feeling this text. He's understanding this text. He knows this word is written for him. This is the prophet naming him like a sheep led to the slaughter. And Philip asks him, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, I, I could use some help. And Philip tells him about another one who was led to the slaughter, a man who came and taught nothing but love, a man who gave his heart and soul to his people, to the world, a man who was wrongfully executed by the stake, by the state, put to death in the most horrible way, and yet now that one continues to live. As they're making their way along, this is all from the, the book of Acts, chapter 8, as they're making their way along in the desert, they come upon an oasis, and there's a pool of water. Does anyone remember or know what the eunuch says to Philip? Here is water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? And the answer is nothing. The Bible is the best commentary on the Bible. A text 
this silly one that immature, stupid Glenn used to, to make fun of and, and say out loud in front of the other jet cadets for Jesus that says, if you're... Uh, private parts have been removed, cut off, crushed, or whatever, you're not allowed in the assembly of, of the Lord, is no longer, no longer a word. And by the way, you can find plenty of words that also do the same thing as Acts chapter 8 in the Old Testament. Isaiah himself is very, very inclusive, just so we're clear. I'm not drawing a distinction between Old Testament bad, New Testament good. But the story, the power of the story is, here's somebody whose gender identity might be fluid or misunderstood or not clear, or not seen. He might be considered somebody who should be kept only over here doing that kind of work, not a part of the community. And that there's that beautiful, powerful, amazing question. Here's water. What keeps me from being baptized? Nothing. That's the story of Jesus Christ. All right, I've got a couple other things, but I want to stop right there and, and open up, up, up for questions. And especially if there's like any Bible verse that you've, that's always bothered you or something that somebody has, has quoted to you or a clobber verse that's out there. I may not know the answer off the top of my head, um, but I'd be happy to wrestle with it with you and maybe even come back next week with some more responses. Any questions about anything that was talked about tonight, I'm happy to address, take, receive, etc. If you've got a question that you're thinking, I want to ask that, but I'm not sure I should, go ahead. Please, Brent. In the in his comments about slavery, is Paul speaking literally about slavery, or is that? Um... Yeah, that's a good question. One of the things that Paul says, he's asking about slavery. Is he speaking literally about it? One of the things that Paul says is, uh, um, uh, "Slaves obey your masters, and masters treat your slaves well." And one of the arguments that was heard back in the 1850s, uh, pre-Civil War, was that, see, we're just supposed to treat, we just care for our slaves properly and nicely, and then they'll be fine, and that'll be okay. We'll feed them and give them housing. And um, there was somebody, there was somebody, a, a commentator a while back who said, um, you know, the White House was built by slaves, and somebody said, well, but they were fed well. It's like, really? And that's, really? So Paul is working again within his context. And, and the, another, another thing that people often say is, well, back then, slaves, slaves were better treated, or back then, it was better to be a slave. There's no time in history when anyone has ever wanted to be a slave, period. If somebody says that nonsense to you, give them my phone number, give them my email address, I'll be happy to address this with them. There's not a time in history when people wanted to be slaves, ever. Sometimes it was the only option. If you were a, a widow, and you, you were childless, and your husband died, uh, and, and there was no one to marry you, what were your options? Prostitution or slavery. And a lot of times they would choose slavery because it's at least safer and you got a place to live. So I, I, I think Paul is meaning it within his context that, it, that slaves care, uh, obey your masters, masters be kind to your slaves. And I think I would say out loud, he was wrong. I, I mean, I flat out think he was wrong. There's a couple of other places where um, Paul or one of his disciples, for example, says women should be silent in church? Um, no, that's, that's, that's not a, an accurate teaching. It's one that I would say today is wrong. And, but some of the nuance around that one, which is different from the slavery question, some of the nuance around that one is, um, that, that I, I read this a couple of weeks ago getting ready for another uh, study, is, is that, that there was a, a group of women who were causing some, some uh, uh, kerfuffles in the church or something. And Paul's, Paul or his disciples basically saying, y'all need to just calm down and, and not, not keep going on, on with that. It's a specific contextual statement there that's not meant to be a broad teaching for the entire church. I'm not sure if I agree with that statement or not, um, but, but I do believe women have a voice in the church, just so we're clear about that. Okay, yes, Erica, way back. Yes. Yeah, sure. So when I, when, I was, um, when I was finishing my Master of Divinity degree, I went to, I went to seminary in Tennessee, and then this guy named uh, Dr. Richard Wing. Some of you heard of him before? He called me in 1987 and said, hey, come be my youth minister. Uh, and I said, I've got 12 units of class to do. He said, you can do it in Berkeley through the General Theological Union. My dad went to school in Berkeley. That's my favorite college football team. So I said, sure, I'll come work for you, Dick. Um, and and uh, I ended up taking a class with Benjamin Reist, a professor at the Theological Union there in Berkeley. 
And he loved that idea. He was the one that first got that idea. He loved that idea of, of, of imagine, imagine Jesus is a colander. And, 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 you know, like, like you've got some, some radishes that you just dug out of the dirt. And maybe they got a little insecticide on them too. But don't do that, by the way. That's bad. Anyway, you got a little insecticide and some dirt on them. You put it in the colander. You turn it on your sink and you, you rinse all that stuff off. And the, the radishes, the good radishes stay. The dirt and the insecticide and the bugs and whatever else, if you wash it really carefully, goes away. In the same way, that's how I understand Jesus. I really see him as, as, the, as the colander. Like, like those verses from Leviticus that I quoted. It might, might, might be dead. No, oh, there it is. Okay. Um, like that verse, I quote, those verses for, I quoted from Leviticus. I don't see Jesus telling a loving couple, regardless of the same gender or not, or et cetera, or whatever variations there might be. I don't see him telling any couple who is in love and have made a commitment to each other that they are an abomination to God. So that, that colander, um, when, you, when you put those words in the colander, those words w- wash away. What sticks is a lot of Isaiah. And what sticks is many of the Psalms. What sticks is much of Genesis, uh, Exodus, etc. Um, especially the prophets, um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Amos, Micah, and, and um, who did I forget? I said Hosea, yeah. Does that make sense? Does that help you a little bit? It washes, it washes the stuff away that's, that's not helpful. Please, Ed. Yeah. Uh, did you all hear what he said? How do you respond to people who quote, uh, second, is it Second Timothy? Second uh, Timothy that says all scripture is inspired and God breathed. My first question to them would be, is Second Timothy part of that? Is it in the Bible, in your opinion? They would say yes. And then I would say, so Paul was writing, he was writing Bible. He believed he was writing Bible. He believed that was inspired. The answer is no. None of the New Testament that we would consider, that I consider as inspired, but not inerrant. Inerrant, is that a new word for many of you? Inerrant means without error. In other words, you take every word literally. It's exactly what God intended to say, which I'd go back to my French notes and go, well, which one? Was it delighted? Was it happy? Was it, what, what which one? Um, and that, that's really the key thing is Paul, and what scripture is Paul talking about? He, Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. He's not talking about the new. And many of those folks would say, well, we're no longer under the old law. We're under Jesus. So it's not a word written about any of the New Testament books at all. Um, and the other, another thing to say is we have, they say that there's an original document that was without error. We don't have any of those documents. So that weakens the argument tremendously, and no one thinks that they really exist. Um, and I can, I will, I, off the top of my head, I can't do it, but I could show about 30 contradictions. Well, here's one. In, let me make sure I get it right. In the books of Samuel, God inspires David to take a census. And it goes very poorly. The people are like, who do you think you are? What are you going to do? Taxes next? Uh, yes. Um, does a census. In the Chronicles, which are telling the same stories but are written 400 years later, who inspired David to take a census? Was it God? Satan. It was Satan who inspired because 400 years later they went, oh, we got to fix this. The history is bad. Everyone got mad at David. It couldn't have been God. It must have been Satan. Both of those words exist in the Bible. Which one was it? My fundamentalist friends say, well, Chronicles corrected it. Oh, it corrected it? So it was wrong here? That's, that's just one example of many. Um, uh, another, there's, I, I, this is from way back in seminary days. Uh, the book of Jonah has, there's at least six statements in the book of Jonah that are impossible to be, fa- are impossible to be factual. And none of those six have anything to do with being swallowed by a whale and surviving. For example, the, the size of the city of Nineveh was so big, I forget the exact numbers, but it was so big, it was this large, etc. There's no time in history when Nineveh was ever that big. It says when the king was in Nineveh, there was never a king in Nineveh. And, and there's a host of things like that to tell you. This is Jonah telling a story to make a point that has nothing to do with surviving, uh, uh, being swallowed by a fish. Thanks, Ed. That's a good question. Please, Martin. Slaves had slaves of their own. You know, it just, uh, it was about 
Do you hear what saying? He read a book about slaves owning slaves who also owned slaves. I've never heard of this before. I, if you know the book, send, send me the title. I'd love to see it. I'd love to see the title, please. Yeah. The other thing that uh, I keep thinking of is, uh, I guess it was the first church where I was pastor. One of the teenage boys kept telling me about this girl that he was beginning to really like. And Philip would <coughs> say to me, she was tough. And I think, yeah, who's he running around with here? Uh, what you begin to realize is words change meaning. Yes. Sometimes yes. 100%. Right. Uh, I thought tough was something bad. He was saying tough was something beautiful. It's, it's like that, um, uh, the movie uh, uh, Back to the Future. Remember when, when Marty goes back to 1955 and, and Doc Brown is explaining something to him? He goes, whoa, that's heavy. And Doc Brown's like, is there a gravity problem in the future? <laughs> that's, that's the kind of point you're making. So yeah, words change. Words transform. Words, words have different meanings, et cetera. Yeah, that's a great point. Thank you, Martin. Larry. Only one of those can be true, yeah. That's not the point of the story, yeah. I don't know if you all can hear that. There's two different stories about a man being lowered through the roof. In one of the Gospels, it's tile. In the other Gospel, it's, it's straw or something. And they're writing to different audiences who would understand the roof in a different way, which has nothing to do with the point. The, other, the point is the friendship and the love for their friend and, and all, all that and coming to Jesus. Um, yeah, I, I remember a, a time in Atlanta... Um, and you know, if you live in if you live in Georgia, you can throw a rock in any direction and hit a fundamentalist. It's, <laughs> that that theology just permeated the 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 area. Um, I was doing a wedding for this couple. She was a member of the church. Uh, he was not. They'd fallen in love. Uh, we went through the prepare and rich inventory that we it's we use the same um, uh, inventory here at First Community to help couples learn about their compatibility in areas that are strengths and areas that are weaknesses and or growth areas, we call them, and how to, how to learn to deal with those kinds of things. And, and their, their, their inventory was not real strong, but they were deeply in love and they, they were willing to wrestle through all these things. Well, we spent an hour and a half doing all that. And then he just finally says to me, I just, Pastor, I just need your help on something. Can you help her understand that the Bible says I'm the head of the family and she has to submit to me? So I just, I just handed my phone and said, call my wife. <laughs> and then he quoted something from Ephesians about wives submit to your husbands. And I said, great, fine. So submit, you want your wife to submit to you. Great. Read the next verse. What's the next verse say? Say it out loud. Husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. The Christ who said, I came not to be served, but to serve. And the Christ who gave his life for the world. So if you want to take the scripture pretty clearly and you want to have a relationship that's based on how this church understands those teachings that you're quoting to me, then you better A, be ready to serve your wife at any moment, and B, if necessary, give your life for hers. I did their wedding two months later. It was beautiful. Other questions? I got one. Oh, please. Yeah, you might be quoting. Uh, that, uh, there's something. Uh, I'm not sure you got it exactly right, but there, there's. It's some. I think it's something like that in Paul in Romans. I think. Don't don't hold me. Don't don't hold me to that. Right, right. It, it, I, I had a girl in my youth group in Hanford, California, before I went to seminary. Uh, I was the director of youth ministries. Uh, she came to Sunday school uh, my first fall there. 
I'd started in September. She came in October or November with her friend Jean, who was in our youth group. And she walked right up to me and she said, Hi, my name's Margie and I'm an atheist. I went, Great, have a donut. <laughs> and we got to be friends and she was a part of the youth group and I got to learn her story. She'd been baptized three times in fourth grade, fifth grade, and sixth grade up in the Sierra Nevada mountains above uh, the Big Valley in California. She'd gone to this fundamentalist Bible camp and was told, If you sin, if you've been sinning this week, and you're not baptized and forgiven, and there's a bus wreck, you're going to go straight to hell. Three times, three summers in a row, she heard that, that nonsense. Um, nine months later, she came forward to join the church. <clears throat> and then she told me afterwards that she wanted to get baptized. She said, Margie, we don't make people get rebaptized. You've been baptized. She said, I was baptized under the name of a God of hate. I want to be baptized under a God of love. It was, it was my first ever baptism. It was a, just an amazing thing. And the first time I baptized somebody. Um, yeah, I, it, I, I, I said this last week. <clears throat> One of the reasons I love this church so much is this theology, not, and it's not just to us, many like us, it can save the world. I mean, I, I preach this stuff all the time, and I get all hyped up about it, and people think, well, you know, not really. No, really. This, this, this is salvific, and I don't mean from hell, but I mean from the terrible things that happen around. Uh, one, one more story, then we'll, then we'll uh, call it a night. I just thought of it when we were talking about the marriage things. I was doing, this is what I was doing in Kansas City. Not members of the church. My church in Kansas City, uh, the church I used to serve, it wasn't mine. The church I used to serve in Kansas City, big, beautiful, Gothic-style cathedral, just gorgeous stained glass windows, unbelievably beautiful. It was really sort of the wedding venue for, the, for Kansas City. My first year, we did 115 weddings. One of my, my first wedding weekend, I had a funeral at 10, a wedding at 1, a wedding at 5, and a wedding at 7. If you can imagine a schedule like that. That was crazy. Anyway, one of the couples I was marrying that, for, that first year um, had an interesting background. And, and they definitely were in the, the husband is the head of the family kind of thing. We didn't, they, they wanted me to do that in the, in the ceremony, like, I'm not going to do that. But they'd also written their own vows. I said, oh, okay, uh, please, if you know anyone who's getting married, don't. Well, actually, I've done some that are fine. It just depends. Anyway, so she reads her vow out loud that she's going to say to him in the ceremony. And it's essentially like this. When you come home at the end of the day, I will take your shoes and massage your feet. If you've had a stressful time at the office, I'll massage your shoulders and, and rub your neck. I will always have dinner ready for you. I mean, you can, I mean I'm just getting hot and sweaty and, you know, <laughs> what am I going to do with this? And, and I, I said, you know, I appreciate that this is how your relationship is. God bless you. That, that's your choice if that's how you want to live. But that's, we see the marriage relationship as a, as a relationship of equals, you know, between equals. And if I let you say those words in the, in the, um, Ceremony, people who don't know me or don't know our church will think that we, we believe that. And, and she started to cry. It's, but it's our wedding. This means so much to us. And she's crying and sobbing. And I just, I, I, I don't know what to say, but I, I can't do that. I can't. I said, you know, you might, you might just take that to the reception and exchange those vows at the reception. You know, that way it's, it's at the reception. That's your reception. You're in charge of that. Why don't you do that? And the, the groom was like, yeah, that might work. Let's, let's go ahead and go. I got a call the next day from her sister. Yes, are you Dr. Miles? Uh, um. <laughs> yes, yes. So I'd like to talk to you. My sister is so-and-so. Oh, okay, we're coming to see you tomorrow. What time are you available? Um, I'm pretty booked. What time are you available? Uh, okay, 10 o'clock, sure. They come in, they sit down, and it is just... You know, sit down. How can you possibly tell them that she can't do this? This is from her heart, and this is all this. And I said, just really honestly, the theological understanding and underpinnings here are really the opposite of what our church preaches. Well, what did she write? I, I went, oh, you, you haven't heard them? No. Well, I have a copy. She reads for about 10 seconds. She stops, and she looks at her sister, and she says, you can't say this. <laughs> Um, <laughs> so, yes, uh, sometimes it helps to have an outside voice uh, when, who, can, who can come in and do all that. All right. Um, I think the hour is done. We have one more week with the Bible. Does, that's not in the Bible. That'll be next week. Um, 
then the next week, two weeks from tonight, is Ash Wednesday, which every year since Jesus told us to have that service here in Grace Hall, has been in Grace Hall. But as you can see, we've made some changes up there with the platforms. We've made some changes with this staging. This staging takes a couple of hours to put to, get, to take apart and put together, et cetera, et cetera, and it's not very easy to do. So the Ash Wednesday service is going to be held in the sanctuary. We've got some really cool ideas for, for how, to, how to decorate in there, how to set it up, and make, what it, make it look just as beautiful and, and precious as it is in here. It's one of my favorite services of the year. So that's two weeks from tonight. And then three weeks from tonight, you get me for four more weeks again, I'm doing a series on Celtic Christianity. It's a really boring title. I'm working on coming up with a snazzy title that's something like, ooh, candles. I, I don't know. Um, <laughs> Something, something like that, and I'll do four weeks on that, and then the clergy, the clergy are going to share the rest. There's seven more Wednesdays after that, and they will, um, we're working on that. We'll be working on, on that schedule on Tuesday. Uh, so just give you a little highlight of, what, of, what's, of what's coming up. All right, let's say a prayer and, and, uh, and be done for the day. Holy God, we're grateful for ancient words that continue to speak to us, even in our own lives, contexts, and places. We're grateful for scholars and educators and leaders who have been willing to listen again for your voice, to hear things in a new way, and to trust that indeed your spirit is present even in that moment as well. No matter what we do or say, God, remind us again and again that the only way is love's way. In Christ's name, amen. Good night.